Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations with your host, John Schultz. Each week, we show you how to make your business enterprise more efficient with proven techniques that will help you spend less, break less, and make more. Now, here is John Schultz. Good afternoon or good morning, depending on what side of the country you're on. This is uh, your host, John Schultz, for another edition, uh, episode seven of Bootlegged Innovations, where we're going to be a little different topic this week. We're going to be talking about smart cities uh, and how the smart city movement can create ladders of opportunities. Uh, Start off the show like we do every week with our mission statement. Our mission statement is to bridge the gap between the needs of the business, or in this case, the community and the ability of the workforce to execute in a secure and resilient environment. I want to start off by thanking my guests from last week, uh, Matthias Klein and John Zhang. Uh, Matthias is the CEO of Cognition, and John Zhang is uh, the director of uh, North American IoT and AI uh, sales for, uh, for Hewlett Packard Enterprises. And last week we talked about a, the Safe Back to Work program, part of Reopening America and talked about uh, reopening in that new normal and how you need a comprehensive solution to be able to not only do things like temperature screening, uh, but also to be able to actually do uh, your contact tracing, uh, to be able to ensure that in manufacturing environments that surfaces are being properly decontaminated and that uh, protocols and SOPs are actually being observed and how can you do all of that and manage a a multi-hundred or thousand person workforce uh, in a manufacturing environment and now uh, we brought to you the Cognition HPE solution uh, which uh, which helps facilitate all of that. Uh, the next thing is uh, the Roosters and I have just completed 14 weeks of confinement but I have good news for the audience I will probably be in a much better mood next week because this Thursday, I actually get to go back on the, out on the road and go up to a manufacturing plant in South Carolina. So it'll be the first time in 15 weeks that I've actually been able to meet, make it off the property. And uh, I think the only person happier about that is probably my wife and maybe the rooster. So it's going to be weird next week uh, not having the roosters on the show because I will be uh, still up in, uh, up in South Carolina uh, during that. It's going to be kind of weird, uh, you know, for me. As I've mentioned before, I've never been home for more than three consecutive weeks since uh, since I graduated college in 1990, and uh, being on the road has kind of been my normal. Uh, and so, but after 14 weeks, nearly 15 of not traveling, I got a feeling that it's going to feel <laughs> normal is going to feel a little weird. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I got on my to done list this last week that I'm pretty happy about was I actually reread a book, and I've, I tell everyone. It was published back in 2006, but it's one of my favorite books, and it's a cornerstone of our business model at Bootleg Advisors, and that book is, is called The Speed of Trust. Uh, it's actually written by Stephen Covey's son, Steve, Stephen uh, M.R. Covey, uh, actually wrote it, and he talks about how to develop what he calls smart trust, and the subtitle of that book is The One Thing That Changes Everything. And what I can tell you is when you're trying to build out the types of solutions that we work on at Bootleg Advisors, that's one of the very first things we have to do is to make sure that we put together an ecosystem, uh, a team of partners uh, that actually like and trust one another. Uh, because if we don't have trust, uh, we're not going to be very successful with our, with our deployment. Uh, so just wanted to give a shout out to The Speed of Trust. If it's not a book that you've read, read yet, 
I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, the, the next thing is uh, my executive pr producer, believe it or not, have told me that I need to actually bring the roosters onto the show more. Uh, and so each week I'm also going to feature kind of a funny Ricky and Silver story. Even though we've got six roosters, those are the two with the most personality. Uh, we occasionally do weddings out on our property. We've done about 20 weddings out here. And uh, when the minister will say, if anyone here has a reason why this couple should not be wed, speak now or forever hold your peace. We've had three different instances in 20 weddings that uh, Ricky and Silver have chimed in at precisely that moment. It's absolutely hysterical. Two of the three weddings were with the same minister. And so he now actually says, because he's done about five weddings out here now, he'll say, does anyone other than Ricky and Silver have any reason why this couple should not be wed? Uh, and that's just one of many uh, just funny Ricky and Silver stories uh, that I'll be sharing with you over the, over the next few weeks. So now on to uh, this week's topic, uh, which is Smart Cities Ladders of Opportunities. I moved to Jacksonville in August of 2016 from Charleston, South Carolina. And when I moved here, I didn't know anyone. I had actually two people that I had what I would call loose business relationships with, but hadn't really had the opportunity to form friendships with. Uh, and for those of you that don't know about Jacksonville, Jacksonville is the largest physical city in the lower 48. It is really, really spread out. And so I find myself moving from a condo in downtown Charleston to 47 acres in North Jacksonville seven miles from the airport, 15 minutes to downtown. And being a social butterfly and serial networker the way that I am, uh, I was going stir crazy pretty quickly. And so I started reaching out into uh, the community through, of all things, LinkedIn uh, and started looking for people that had interesting jobs, interesting companies. And if they accepted my invitation, I asked if they would like to go out for, uh, for either coffee or a drink. And uh, through that process, I've been fortunate enough now to meet one-on-one -on -one with over 150 CEOs of tech companies like Stephen Poland that's uh, actually on the show today. Uh, I've also had the opportunity to meet with over 60 non-for-profits like Jeff Winkler. And occasionally I even meet with a crazy public sector person uh, like, uh, like Jeff Sheffield, uh, who is on the show today, which, uh, you know, Jeff is also a, uh, a, a avid wrestling fan much like myself so that's something that jeff and i actually share he's also a bit of a metalhead uh for the audience which is something that not very many people know about that not very many people know about jeff uh and so on paper there's absolutely no way that jeff and i you know jeff runs uh, the transportation planning organization for north florida and when people originally were telling me that you got to meet this, if you're going to be involved in smart cities, you got to meet this guy, Jeff Sheffield. I kept on going, what does he do again? And they go, he runs a transportation planning organization, but he thinks much bigger than transportation. Um, and uh, finally, Jeff and I were able to meet. Um, Jeff is uh, one of the, the, the best conveners and, and uh, facilitators I've ever had the pleasure of working with in my career. Um, and I'm proud to be zippered in with Jeff as we try to figure out how to move North Florida fo forward with the, uh, the Smart City Initiative uh, called Smart North Florida here. So, Jeff, uh, could you please uh, introduce yourself to the audience and talk a little bit more about your role and the charter of the uh, North Florida Transportation Planning Organization, or better known as TPO? Thanks, John. Happy to be on the show. And 
it is a bit odd for public sector to find their way in this space, and it's been a, a great ride for the last uh, few years. As a transportation planning organization, yes, we are public sector. Uh, our primary charter is, is more in traditional transportation. It has been for decades, uh, since the 1970s, doing long-range transportation planning for, in our case, the Northeast Florida region, so four counties, 2,600 square miles and setting the transportation priorities and federal funding for those projects. Um, we find ourselves in the smart city space because of this evolution, particularly in the transportation arena uh, of technology and innovation now from cameras to sensor controllers to signal controllers, dynamic message signs and things of that nature that have put us in a position to, to really be able to move an initiative in the smart community space is what we prefer to call it and, uh, and really uh, be a player in the region. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, my second guest, um, again, somebody like myself, a kind of a, a serial tech entrepreneur, there's, many would say there's no reason why uh, Jeff Winkler and I should have, uh, should have met up, but as we started going through, as Jeff Sheffield and I started identifying various non-for-profits that were doing amazing work in our community and trying to really dive in to understand what, those what gaps those non-for-profits were trying to fill as well as what challenges with uh, technical and digital disruption that they in anticipated that they were going to have that the smart city initiatives might be able to help uh, we brought <coughs> the uh, United Way team into the uh, to, to the command center uh, which is kind of the hub for smart city activities in North Florida and kind of told them the story and they told us theirs and uh, I met uh, the, my second guest, um, who heads up the basic needs program for the uh, Northeast Florida uh, United Way. So, Jeff Winkler, can you please introduce yourself and explain the basic needs program uh, that many know as uh, the 211 program? Thanks, John. Uh, it's great to be with you all. And just to kind of echo some of the comments that Jeff Sheffield shared, um, because of you, John Schultz, um, you've helped open the door for us and our organization um, and introduced us to a number of folks that we normally would never be engaged with. So um, thank you for your partnership and for having me here uh, today. Um, so just a little bit of background, United Way's mission here in Northeast Florida is to connect um, people, resources, and ideas to solve our community's toughest challenges. Um, knowing that one agency cannot possibly solve these problems alone, um, we work with others to make sure that we can solve our community's toughest challenges. And that's where the power of partnerships really come in uh, to play. Um, so 211, many hopefully on the call may have heard it before. Um, we're similar to a 911, 411, or a 511, or um, some of the numbers that you might be familiar with. Uh, but people call 211 basically to access um, information and referral for a wide range of social services, um, particularly around food, housing, utilities payment, assistance, healthcare, childcare, mental health crisis, and disaster and information. Um, so we have highly trained specialists who provide expert and caring help um, that not only address the presenting need of the callers who contact us, but also the underlying needs. We take the time um, really to, to understand what the current caller situation is and how we might be able to help them. So if you think about other contact centers like AT&T or BB&T, a lot of their focus is really on first call resolution and working through those calls as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Um, our agents are trained to do active listening, to have empathy, and to really spend the time necessary with callers to identify their needs 
and then hopefully be able to connect them to uh, community resources. Um, of the 240 211s across the country, about 50 of them are run, 50% of them are run by United Ways, like ours. The other 50% are run by community organizations that typically receive um, funding from uh, United Ways. Um, here in Northeast Florida, we handle a little over 100,000 calls annually um, and also serve as our community's crisis and suicide prevention hotline. Uh, we're accredited by the American Association of Suicidology and the Alliance for Information and Referral Services. Um, typically, our top needs are going to be financial assistance, um, and that has only been exacerbated here um, during the COVID pandemic. Um, as you can imagine, I think this is bringing the tie into how I connected with Jeff and John. Um, we warehouse and capture a tremendous amount of data. Uh, we have over 4,000 agencies in our database, um, and that is growing consistently. Um, a lot of the data that we capture is around demographics, uh, where folks are calling from, what the top needs are, and what are the unmet needs. And we're really trying to use this information to not only help analyze and, and forecast certain trends in our community, but how can we inform funding decisions um, and community-wide investments? Um, so that's really one of the big powers that we see here in this partnership is how can we leverage the relationships with John and with Jeff uh, to really look and analyze at our data and become better stewards to community donor dollars and to community needs as well. Uh, we work widely with a large different number of organizations, federal and private. Uh, we have contracts with the Department of Health, VOCA, um, and we're currently working with DCF um, in exploration of a partnership with FEMA, um, who normally provides crisis counseling post-disasters. Um, this, and this is where the, the great um, partnership with 211s is coming into play. A lot of that crisis counseling was typically delivered face-to-face. -face. And now with the concerns of COVID, um, that can't be done. So FEMA and DCF, uh, Department of Children and Families here in Florida, are looking at how they can partner with 211s to do that crisis counseling um, over the phone or virtual. Um, so this is really where we are. There's a lot more I can share. I hope I can share more. Um, I think in addition to information and referral, we're really looking at moving beyond that and providing more care coordination. You know, as people's needs become more complex and as the systems that are in place here in our community become more complex, it's not as simple as just giving somebody a phone number and wishing them well. Uh, they're going to need more assistance and, and um, connectivity um, throughout the, the cause of their crisis for us to stick with them and provide them help. Jeff, I can speak for, I, I just appreciate everything the United Way does in not only our community, but across the country. Uh, I actually had very, very little idea just how many different uh, organizations fed off of and were part of the United Way coalition. Um, even though back in the day, back in my days at Eli Lilly and Company, I spent uh, one year as the uh, United Way coordinator uh, just to un better understand uh, services like 211, basic needs, and how United Way serves the community. It's just uh, it, the more I learn about it, and I learn more about it almost every day, uh, the more impressed I am with what the organization does and what you do for the community. So thank you for your service. Uh, my, uh, my third guest uh, he is the poster child of all ships, not should rise, but must rise. Uh, he has got one of the biggest hearts of any entrepreneur, any person that I've ever met, uh, regardless of the underserved community that I want to, that I, that I want to talk about, learn about, uh, Stephen has become my go-to resource. 
whether it is about uh, engaging kids uh, in their careers earlier in middle school and high school so that they can start thinking about what their, what their future looks like, whether it's promising people initiatives with people that uh, have been incarcerated with, uh, in unviolent crimes, whether it be our veterans. Uh, Stephen has just really shown that you can do well uh, by doing good. And uh, he has become one of my favorite people in, uh, in all of Jacksonville. I had to have him on, on, on this particular show because when we start talking about ladders of opportunities, uh, you know, I think that uh, there's, a, there's one or more ladders that, uh, and rungs on each ladder that have Stephen's name all written, written all over it. So, Stephen, can you please introduce yourself and explain a little bit about the work that uh, ATG has been doing over uh, the last 20 years? and how that helped you launch a career platform like Pelocity. Sure, thank you. And I want to say what an honor it is today to be on the show, Jeff, uh, Jeff, both uh, uh, on the show with us. Um, what's really always fascinating about, as we have seen technology uh, kind of evolve and where it is today, one of the last things oftentimes that uh, organizations forget about is the people who drive that technology. And not only the people who drive that technology, but also what's unique about it is that what, what, what's the outcome from it? How does it affect people? What's been really fascinating, uh, we're currently working with, uh, with UNF here in Jacksonville about how COVID uh, has uh, affected you know, the workplace. Uh, it was really fascinating seeing you know, today uh, where uh, prior to the COVID piece, a lot of people thought about uh, you know working remotely and how fun that would be and everything else, not ever understanding uh, what the social impact is. <clears throat> you know, I've, I've talked to my friends who have kids. You know, they love their kids and everything else. They're going now. They truly value uh, the teachers in the classroom. Uh, when we talk about smart cities today and 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 some of the fascinating work that's being done, and and the question is, is that you know it's one thing to have the technology. The other question is, is who's going to repair or who's going to install, who's going to take that data and analyze that data and things of that nature. And then, of course, for us, back uh, almost 20 years ago, although we focused on a particular vertical, we realized that, you know, uh, what we call town as a service is much more broader than that. It really encompasses our underserved community, our military uh, portion where, uh, you know, that John shared, uh, you know, education and things of that nature. So for us today is that how do you take all these things that are happening and how technology is changing this at light speed and then how do you make it collectively in the workplace uh, to be able to allow, you know, not only, I mean, think about it. Today we have five generations in the workplace and how different each of those people uh, or in your workforce, what their contributions are, you know, what their mindsets are, uh, where, you know, where, how they think about problem solving and things of that nature. So for really at the end of the day, it's really looking at how uh, not only the human capital aspect, but how technology and also visioning the future of how those uh, things will ultimately collectively come together and be able to do really cool stuff and really allow people to have the lifestyle uh, jobs that they're looking for or careers and really make uh, kind of the social impact that we look for, not only in our community, but also nationally. The thing that excited, really excited me about, one of the many things that really excited me about Pelosi, and I actually had a couple of my own, a uh, couple of my, uh, my children as well as some of my nieces and nephews actually take it because I feel as if 
Velocity really starts filling some of the void that back in the day, whenever I was in school, the guidance counselor actually filled uh, to really help you understand uh, what your career path opportunities even are based on your knowledge, your skills, your abilities, your, your wants, your needs, your desires, the lifestyle that you want, being able to pull all of that together into one platform. Uh, and for that to be the outcome of over 20 years of industrial psychologists at assessment technology group, uh, putting together those, those models uh, so that, you know, so many of the assessment tools are just the, what do you want to do? What are your passions? What, uh, as opposed to finding the intersection of that Venn diagram of what are you passionate about? Where's your knowledge, skills, and abilities, and where's the marketplace actually going to value you being able to, to see the intersection of that Venn diagram that you can see on the Pelocity platform uh, is just sensational. Uh, and it's a one of a kind tool in that particular space. And uh, whether it's an individual, whether it's an organization or whether it's a, a company uh, to be able to use that to direct uh, the needs of their workforce is just a, it's a really interesting tool. Uh, Jeff Sheffield, looking to do a pivot back to talking a little bit more about Smart North Florida. Can you talk about when and where the roots of Smart North Florida and the Smart City movement in the greater Jacksonville area kind of stem from? Yeah, John, it's been kind of an interesting ride, to be quite honest. Uh, with, with me not knowing really the broad spectrum of what a smart city can become, fast forward today, now I do, uh, <laughs> it, it's an interesting path. I think from a community aspect, whether it's private sector, technology and innovation companies that have already been for a number of years operating in a sort of smart city space, or whether our, a utility entity like us here in Jacksonville with JEA, who's been doing a lot of things in smart grid and, and efficiencies there, there are elements and pockets of activity, I think, that have been happening for a number of years but the movement, the smart North Florida movement, smart city, kind of this aggregate um, collaboration, I think is rooted actually in the public sector with an initiative nationwide in 2016. I think it, for us, it, it really comes from the U.S. Department of Transportation when they funded a $40 million competition for one city in America to be funded under this new brand of a smart city initiative without a clear definition of what that meant. I think it created opportunities across the country, including this region, to, to pursue that funding opportunity. Uh, I believe it originates there. Uh, while this region was not successful in doing it, uh, we as the TPO, having spent 15 years of investing already in the technology space in transportation, uh, created the opportunity for us to sort of develop what that SMART initiative would look like for Northeast Florida. Uh, unique, because again, when you look around the country, it's mostly city-centric, so you'll have a mayor or a city sort of take on the effort. Uh, we at the time didn't necessarily have that, so as the TPO being regional, we were able to take the torch and sort of develop what that might look like. Uh, again, though, very uh, lane oriented in the transportation space at the time. But I believe that for, for us and, and for Northeast Florida is sort of if you were to pick a moment in time that sort of took it and, and, and took it to the next level, uh, I really do find it embedded in that national initiative that the USDOT had, had put out there. 
I'm, I'm beginning to wonder, Jeff, because we talk, often talk about how, you know, like so many other communities after 2016, when Columbus, Ohio won the grant, and obviously we didn't, that was kind of an opportunity to reflect uh, and pivot and really start understanding that, you know, there were use cases and that if you're actually using transportation uh, as kind of a collect connective tissue to ensure access to all the things like basic needs that we're going to be talking about with Jeff Winkler and for employment that we're talking about with Stephen Poland, uh, it really does start providing some of those interesting ladders of opportunities. But I also can't help but think that, you know, we lost, we, we, we were unsuccessful in getting the, uh, the Smart City grant, so we ended up uh, on a different path. I'm almost wondering if, uh, you know, if the fact that uh, the Jaguars playing so poorly isn't the reason why we have AEW. <laughs> yeah. John, I got to tell you, man, there, you know, you always kind of look for silver lining if you don't necessarily win a grant. And, you know, and I'm, I'm here to say that I think from the long-term sustainability model for, for what we know now to be this sort of smart community initiative, it may have been the best thing that happened. You had, to build a you had to build a coalition for change, and, and yep. I really believe that the combination of what we're going to talk about a little later with the integrated data exchange and that coalition for change yep. uh, is really is what in the long haul is going to differentiate what we're doing in North Florida from what anyone else is doing in the country. The difference uh, between getting the funding and not is accelerating the time sequence. You know, if you had the funding, you, you could do things faster but you also shortcut the long-term collaborative partnerships and building it from the grassroots to have, frankly, building it to the point where those who are interested and then those who see value become heavily invested instead of just utilizing the funds to create what we think the community in the region wants and then not create a sustainable model from it. So it's really been a positive in many ways uh, for us to not have been awarded the funding so that we could pursue this the way the way it happened, not necessarily the way we roadmapped it. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of piggybacking onto that, Jeff, how would you say that, you know, as the head of a TPO, right? Because in every, every urbanized community has one, uh, but how in the world as the head of a TPO did you find yourself leading a smart city initiative and tackling really some more of the systemic challenges that link directly to, you know, we'll talk to Jeff Winkler about it again here in a minute, like homelessness and hunger and healthcare and just some of the other things. how did you find yourself in that space? No idea. It was the craziest <laughs> thing because, you know, you, you come from this initially, we were just trying to move the needle in transportation, seeing that a lot of examples around the world, the, the transportation space has been that early adopter of innovation, automated vehicles, new technologies to try to enhance transportation as a whole. And that's what we thought we would do. Same kind of stuff, just next in a, next iteration. For the 28 years I've been in public sector doing this type of thing. What I didn't know was as we started to really push the initiative and talk about the broad context of really the three components for us being uh, from the technology side, just simply the projects, the physical infrastructure, to the component of, of shared and cooperative data sharing opportunities to, to really break down sectors, create a spirit of cooperation. And then really the, the, the third part for us and, and what seems to be the biggest and most important part, ironically, not tech, 
is the collaboration, getting people together. And I think those three components and the spirit of data sharing sort of created this, this cooperative mentality between sectors and suddenly you made the conversation very universal. We're all looking to solve issues within our sectors. We are in a world now where data and analytics are the, are the catchphrases of how we become more efficient in what we do. And as that became more of a universal conversation, it didn't matter then what the context of the conversation was. We're all kind of in the same boat in how we'll look at it. And I, I think it's that kind of mentality that, that had other sectors, not unlike United Way, sort of reach out and, and have these interactions with us that, that didn't seem intuitive. And that's how I land then in, in touring of homeless facilities, um, not from just the transportation opportunity we might be able to create, but this broader context of collaboration and trying to make them more efficient uh, maybe not something we could do as the TPO, but the TPO could bring the right people together to have that conversation. I think that's what we've seen in every sector now to the point where Smart North Florida is not the North Florida TPO. Smart North Florida is its own movement, and the TPO, albeit a heavy part of it, it becomes one of many partners in the overall initiative. It, it's been an amazing ride. For the last couple of years. Yeah, Jeff, I remember last March, uh, I was told that if uh, you and I showed up at one more homeless shelter, we would actually end up showing up in their numbers. Yeah, can we get a free meal, right? <laughs> and so, you know, Jeff, I want to pivot back to a little bit about the basic needs program. And a lot of people don't understand the difference between the poverty line and a metric that, you know, has really been driven by the United Way, which is that ALICE index. Uh, which and so could you explain to our audience a little bit about uh, how Alice ties to basic needs, what it is, and where we as a community kind of stand with with regards to Alice performance? Because when the title of the show is Ladders of Opportunities, but I you know having grown up you know in a, in, a, in an impoverished household myself, you know I really know that it's really difficult at times to focus on those ladders of opportunities when your basic needs are not being met. And I really think that the Alice index is a very interesting way of looking at that. Yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning of the call, John, that your mission here for this um, production is to bridge the gap. Um, and when you think about basic needs within our society, that gap is pretty darn big uh, and it continues to grow in terms of need. Um, so, ALICE is an acronym that stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained, Employed. And it's just a different way of referring to the working poor. Um, and I think, you know, historically speaking, the whole connotation of basic needs can bring up memories, depending on what generation you're from, can bring up, you know, memories or images of homelessness, people on the street, um, people who are destitute, um, generational. Um, what it doesn't conjure up in many people's minds is, these are the people who work for us. These are the people that we work with. These are the people that make society function. These are us. And so it, it's, it's really moving away from an us versus them mentality to this is us. Um, the fact remains is that the federal poverty guidelines haven't changed in decades. And so there's really not an accurate way to measure how people are struggling or how many people are struggling to make ends meet by using federal poverty guidelines. I mean, look at a lot of social service agencies, they're using a percent of the federal poverty guideline to determine eligibility. So if you are gonna be eligible for housing um, or for food through a program, 
you don't have to be at poverty level. You have to be at up to 150 or 200% of poverty level. So using those old guidelines, it doesn't really give us an accurate measure to see how many people are struggling in our, in our communities. Um, so the ALICE report, which was started several years ago out of northern New Jersey, um, really aimed to do that. And what they've created is um, a survival budget that really looks at the six or seven core components of a household budget. These are your big ticket items, your rent, your utilities, housing, food, insurance, childcare. Um, and they recently, I'm sure you guys will appreciate this, have built in technology because they recognize that households cannot function without internet or TV in most cases. Uh, but when you look at that, that threshold, 40% um, of residents and households in our community, 40% fall below that threshold. Um, that's almost one in half of all the households here in Jacksonville um, are not able to make ends meet on a consistent basis. Um, and that might, be, might not be alarming to some, but if it is, it should be alarming because that's not talking about a small percentage of our society who's struggling. It's talking about the overwhelming need. And that 40%, mind you, was a figure that was um, um, found pre-COVID. You know, now that we're looking at um, potential unemployment rates as high as 25% in certain areas, that number is going to go through the roof. Um, so what we're seeing right now within our United Way and our 211, we're seeing people who are calling us very, very fearful for being able to maintain their rent for their utilities. Um, over 80% of the calls that we're getting that are COVID-related are coming from individuals who have either lost income or lost their jobs. And up until this point here in our state, at least, um, our governor has put in a um, executive order that has pretty much halted or placed a moratorium on evictions. Um, same to that, a lot of the utility companies have placed a hold on disconnects. And we know that that's not going to last forever. Um, in fact, our utility company, um, JEA, Jacksonville Electric Authority, just came out last Friday and said that they are no longer going to be holding off on service disconnections uh, beginning July 7th. There's currently 22,000 households who are up for disconnect right now. Uh, we don't even know how that translates to individuals with mortgage and, and rent needs, um, but the, the need is, is significant. Um, poverty levels just don't cut it. You know, the poverty guidelines, $12,000 for an individual and $26,000 for a family of four. That's not, nobody can live off, off of those wages. Uh, so we're really dedicated to helping Alice. Um, the needs are always far greater than the, the resources that are available. Um, and it really just accentuates the need for partnerships like these and throughout our community um, to really rally behind this significant amount of needs so that we can potentially eliminate or hopefully just reduce the number of these families who are gonna be potentially homeless on the street or without power. Yeah, that's what so many people just don't recognize is the fact that when you're at or below Alice, that is with zero dollars going into savings or towards entertainment. Uh, and then all of a sudden you take a pandemic and you throw that on top of it. Uh, and, you know, the, the percentage of people that are hurting right now uh, is just is just, you know, something I never I never really appreciate, even though I grew up the way that I did. Whenever I found, when I learned about Alice and I found out the percentage of the people in my own community that were living below Alice, uh, it honestly was astonishing to me. And then when I started doing some mapping, that's where I'll tie back into Stephen, I started doing some mapping of the types of careers that people could have. And it was also astonishing to me the number of hardworking jobs 
that pay below Alice. Uh, that is the reason why people have to sometimes have a second job, which is the reason why you have two income, multi-income households. Uh, so Stephen, what I'd like to kind of talk about with 40% of North Florida's uh, people below an Alice pre-pandemic, can you talk a little bit about how the Pelocity platform can actually provide people to help understand the ladders of opportunities that exist for them? Sure. It, you know, what's really fascinating with those numbers is that I think in, in real, in, in kind of the terms thinking is that we're really talking about middle class America. I mean, we're talking about how many of them are probably $500 away uh, from, you know, from a, a 911. And so one of the interesting things several years ago, um, you know, growing up in, you know, uh, in understanding the inner city and, and things that nature, one of the things were is that we realized is that so often these uh, underserved communities don't have the opportunity to know what they're capable of. You know, they grow up and what's fascinating is people don't understand that just because you grew up in an in a underserved community doesn't mean that you're not going to be successful. Uh, when we talk about, you know, when, one of the things we do in the high schools, we ask them, say, before we get started, I'd like you to do a search on people with single parents, uh, famous athletes, you know, successful people. And what's fascinating, the, the people who pop up, you know, they talk about Barack Obama, they talk about, you know, LeBron James, I mean, Kanye, I mean, the list just goes on and, and it really helps them understand that there is opportunity. But the challenge is, is that, when you come from those areas, uh, what you don't understand is that I, I, I have no way of measuring what I'm good at. I don't, you know, uh, people say that just because I grew up in these, uh, in these communities, I must, I'm, I, I'm not smart. I, I'm not, uh, I don't know how to do problem solving. Uh, don't know how to do those types of things. So what we want to just try to understand from a, you know, we're very science driven. And we work with uh, multiple different universities when we do these social projects to truly understand what is those drivers and what really makes that difference. So while we were working in over some of the high schools, uh, they asked us to implement this technology of ours. And what was really interesting is one of the gentlemen that I had the, the profound opportunity not only to meet, but also he ultimately ended up interning with us. And what was fascinating, he was a first-gen you know, he, his whole thing was he wanted to go to college. He wanted to get into IT. But because of his lack of exposure, his only thing he could think of is I want to be a web developer. Well, what's interesting is that once we took him through our technology and everything else, we realized that he was very STEM-centric. Well, we're excited to say that three years later, he's getting ready to graduate from Savannah State University with a computer science degree and will be working with IBM. So it goes to show that by using technology and really looking at them from a talent perspective and not based off of where they grew up or who their background is, it's really providing us opportunity, uh, especially prior to the COVID-19, uh, where we were, you know, just, you know, we were almost at 2% unemployment. I mean, anybody who wanted to work technically was working. So by being able to upskill these individuals, what it really allows us to do is be able to look at from Alice's perspective and take them from that bottom, you know, kind of that bottom portion of what it is 
and see if there's ways for us to upskill them through certifications or even through apprenticeship programs and things of that nature. It was really fascinating that what people didn't understand is that uh, sometimes, you know, kids don't need to go a traditional route through school for their four-year degree or uh, AA degree, although it's always encouraged that, you know, education is the economic divide, but there's also other ways of being able to do that uh, by going through certifications, especially in the technology center today, how critical, you know, technology or just the basic fundamentals of technology. Yeah, that was one of the things that I learned firsthand. Uh, my son actually, my middle son actually uh, got his four-year degree, but he got his four-year degree as a creative in, uh, in digital art and really struggled in the job market for a long time, uh, even though he had a digital art uh, and graphic design degree from one of the best colleges in the country that you could get that kind of degree from. Uh, and then all of a sudden he goes and he takes a $1,200 class that lasts 90 days uh, from Udacity uh, and augmented and virtual reality, he gets a $1,200 certificate and all of a sudden uh, his employability and his income went up by 60% and took him from below Alice to above Alice. Uh, and so it's amazing that when you start understanding uh, how close your knowledge, skills, and abilities might align you to other paths that you could take in life, uh, and how, how much a different type of life that you could have if you take some of those paths. Um, that's just one of the areas that, uh, you know, I almost look at Pelocity, uh, you know, as kind of the transportation initiative. It, uh, it's kind of the interstate highway system for people's career uh, and can kind of show them how to get from where they are to where they really want to be based on the lifestyle they want to live, as well as the knowledge, skills, abilities, and passions that they, uh, that they possess. Jeff, going back to kind of the the the, the TPO, uh, anytime somebody wants to really experience Smart North Florida, we bring them into the command center. Uh, and you know, can you explain to the audience how the North Florida model for the command center is different than most other TPOs? Uh, certainly, not only just in the state of Florida, but nationally, and the types of organizations that work there and have actually done away with a lot of the phone protocol. Sure, John. I think the picture is worth a thousand words. And so, albeit just a, a small piece of what an overall smart city initiative can be, uh, the ability to bring, whether it's the public, private sector, non-intuitive partners in the tech space, um, to, to understand kind of the TPO, but where we're, where we're anchored, uh, the regional command center that we were able to fund and, and construct back in 2015 speaks volumes to that. Um, for, for those out there listening, it, it's technically called a transportation management center. TMCs exist all over the country in different forms, but, but the simple nature and concept of it is to basically break down the silos in the transportation space initially get first responders and transportation entities all in one command center running the region's infrastructure, creating uh, efficiencies in incident response, reducing phone protocol between entities, and creeping a transportation system more efficient. That's really the core of it. Um, the uniqueness exists, again, in this historical pattern of us and our ability to create partnerships and, and collaboration. Uh, typical TMCs in the country are going to house a highway patrol and a, a version of a Department of Transportation within those those cities or or states. 
Um, ours, be, again, because of this long history, uh, in, at least in the tech space for transportation, uh, and our ability to bring entities together, uh, we have a facility that does far more than that uh, in terms of its partnerships. We do house Florida Highway Patrol and Florida Department of Transportation, uh, and we are running uh, the system for about 22 counties in Northeast Florida. But beyond that, we have uh, Fish and Wildlife managing uh, waterways and lands for the entire state. We have local law enforcement with sheriff's offices in there running uh, real-time crime centers. We have full connection to our transit authorities, our port authorities, our emergency operations center. The, the premise, again, is to, to make sure that all the players are in the room or connected to the room to, to run our, our transportation system. But again, this whole Smart North Florida movement, the command center for us wanting to take it beyond just transportation, uh, we've seen opportunities to do that. Um, I really want to make it the smart command center so that it, it integrates wherever we can add value. And I think the, the sheriff's office first coming in as kind of that non-intuitive component because they it's not necessarily a transportation issue, but they are running a real-time crime center now out of our facility and assisting uh, in, in operations there. And then the unique conversation, again, when we talk about um, interacting with agencies that, that initially on paper don't seem like we should be talking, the United Way becomes that example. Um, as we've talked about, and Jeff can elaborate, the, the 211 system, we are now seeing the opportunities to, to uh, allow our command center to help support that dispatch center at the United Way to be able to house one or, or possibly two dispatchers to allow for 24-hour support out of this command center for the United Way's 2-1-1 system that at the, at, the, at the moment is operational mostly just during the daytime hours uh, locally here. So, so it speaks to one, a visual validation of, of really what the, those beginnings of a smart city can be, the basics of technology and using it to be more efficient. But then the bigger picture of coming off of that story and being able to say this can become so much more. We don't know what all those opportunities are, but the more we talk and engage, the more we'll discover and then to the extent that we can facilitate that in the command center, that's what we really want to want to do. Yeah, Jeff Winkler, this is you know, uh, one of the things that I've just been extremely excited about. Uh, it's something that you and Jeff and I have been working on for a while and with the leadership and the support of people like Major Gadsden being able to make it a reality. Can you talk about you know, what moving into uh, the command center will do for the 211 program and our ability to better serve our community. Yeah, well, well, first, um, you know, Jeff just said a, a second ago, picture's worth a thousand words. I wish you all could see it because it's a really cool environment. Um, what we anticipate that it's going to do for us, um, like, John, like Jeff said, it's going to help us, you know, from a business perspective, cost savings. Uh, we're at capacity in our current um, facility. Um, we're also in, located in the basement where there's no natural light. Um, and the team isn't very excited about. So I think that moving into a, a high-tech environment like the command center is going to be very appealing for our team, but it's going to raise our um, uh, position in the community. Um, it's going to put us in close proximity to many other state agencies. Um, and let's face it, you know, that 
the technology that we are um, embracing right now and that everybody has access to is, is second to none. And like Stephen said earlier, that the people who are driving that technology are incredibly important. But technology alone is not going to get us there. It really still comes down to relationships, and it comes down to the ability to partner. Um, so we're, we're excited about partnering with the different entities who are located in the command center. But we're also you know, looking at this to be a symbiotic relationship. We know that we have a lot to offer as well. Um, one of the services that we provide through 211 in a partnership with Lyft is to provide people with free transportation to access food, medical, um, or employment purposes. Uh, we're expanding that partnership to offer in free food delivery with a partnership with DoorDash. Um, we know that there's going to be agencies who are working in the command center who may run across needs um, and not know where to go. And so having one of our call specialists, um, or two, I, I would prefer two, Jeff, by the way, um, <laughs> By having our call center specialist located in the command center, that's going to be an immediate on-site resource for those agencies as well. Um, so this, you know, as systems, technology is improving, systems aren't necessarily keeping up with that technology. Um, and for the, the general person um, or the layman, those systems can be incredibly complex to navigate. So we really want to help bring some uh, navigation for those systems, but most importantly, we want to expand our partnership so that we can work more collaboratively together to meet the community's toughest needs. The thing that we're also really excited about is the fact that by getting the 211 located in the command center, one, just from, a, just from an optics perspective, it not only lifts the, uh, lifts the optics of 211, but also it uh, changes the conversation about what Smart City is all about. And I really believe that getting 211 into the command center and making it part of that smart city initiative really speaks to this concept of all ships rising. Uh, Jeff, one of the centerpieces and one of the things that makes, you know, whenever you walk into, you know, a command center like we have in Jacksonville, the sheer quantity of data that we have in our community from the private sector, the public sector, and as Jeff had said, from the non-for-profit sector, whether it be the lift data or it be from these 4,000 agencies or whether it be the, the, the information being collected off of 211, you had the foresight to basically say that, you know, if we're going to do this and do it right, we need to start with an integrated data exchange. Could you talk a little bit about the integrated data exchange uh, and how important this coalition that you've built has been to that. It's been very important, John. I think when we looked around from just smart cities across the country, even the world, you know, the, the, the real heart and soul of the way we saw it was, was this notion of data sharing, um, not only because of the sheer data to be able to share it literally, but, but what, the, what, the, what it meant to be able to create an open data exchange. And what it meant was the ability to create cooperation between sectors and, and the ability to break down those silos. And so we really thought that although that doesn't make the front page of a newspaper, that's the heart and soul uh, of a smart city. And so uh, we have been very fortunate to focus on that initially and develop the North Florida Data Exchange. It, it, it as much of our initiative is more of an organic growth as opposed to the ability to go out and just access all the public data sets we could find and house them there, we've elected instead to do it more organically. So the organizations or agencies that have data, they, 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 they need to partner and, and want to share in it and through use cases be able to show them the value of not only their data sets but the, the ability to bring in other 
others from other entities to make themselves more efficient. Um, it, it's, it's the component they're really connected with the entrepreneurial sector. So startups and tech and innovation companies, uh, the ability to access that type of information, apply the analytics to it and either develop a marketable business opportunity from it or contribute philanthropically to the success of our community is what we find that has resonated to sort of bridge that gap. We think that that serves as sort of the backbone to create an investment opportunity, a value proposition to the entrepreneurial sector to be part of our community's biggest challenges. Couldn't have said it better myself. And, you know, even the, uh, even building out the integrated data exchange was actually a public private partnership between yourself and a local entrepreneurial company. And now the fact that we're able to go to that next level and start actually having hackathons yeah. uh, to, to further solve more community problems uh, is just, I'm really excited about the, uh, the, the next chapters of what we're going to see in smart North Florida. We've got just a couple of minutes before, uh, before the wrapping up of this episode um, and I may end up calling you guys up and uh, doing a little bit of bonus footage for the audience uh, because we didn't get to everything that I had hoped to get to in this episode. Uh, and just imagine we were also originally supposed to have a fourth guest. Unfortunately, Mike Barlow had uh, had to uh, had to take a rain check. I'm going to be doing some bonus uh, footage with him. For those of you that don't know, uh, Mike was the co-author uh, with Cornelia levy Bushin of uh, – Smart City, Smart Future, the best book that I've ever seen uh, and read with regards to uh, the smart city movement and what is possible and just benchmarking best practices around the, uh, around the, the, uh, the world. Uh, so with that, we are going to wrap up this week's episode. Uh, next week's episode, I'd like to thank my guests uh, for being on the show. Next week's episode, we are going to focus on cyber vulnerabilities and risks which is another pivot for me because it's an area that I never thought I would be talking about. And uh, we actually, one of our guests next week, uh, Alex Borhani, what used to be the uh, one of the heads of the FBI cyber crime division. Uh, he's now an entrepreneur uh, launching a new platform called Torseer. But we're really going to talk about the cost of data breaches and while managing external cyber threats is once again, as with other episodes that we've talked about necessary but not sufficient. So with that, until next week, focus on moving your to-dos to to-dones. And uh, above all else, keep on bootlegging. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bootlegged Innovations. Be sure to join John Schultz again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week. 